You know, it has once or often been quipped that there are two certainties in life, death and taxes. <laughs> two certainties in life. I think we could, uh, we could go on with that phrase and say that, that there is certainly one thing true in life, that it's not always going to go the way you want it to go. Right? We all, um, whether that's right now or times looking back, have experienced seasons of misery. Uh, we've experienced low times. We've experienced sadness. We think or want or expect life to go a certain way and to go into uh, with our favor. With, and yet sometimes we find just the opposite take place. Right? We look at our, our family members and we wish that there was faith where there is unbelief. We've talked about that this morning already. And Christmas time, it's a reminder of oftentimes that not all is well as we reflect on our broad family. Uh, as we look at our churches, right? We'd love to see hundreds and hundreds of people flocking to hear the gospel preached and be saved. But we live in a time in the Western world where the love of many is growing cold. We would love to see greater flourishing in our jobs and in our careers and, and so forth. But it doesn't always go the way we want. One of the great dangers of, the, of a kind of gospel that is popular today, it's not a true gospel, but it's called a gospel as the, the health and wealth and prosperity gospel. It's called the word of faith. That you speak something, I want that car. You believe and it's going to be there. And if you don't get that car or that house or that, that spouse or that job, then you don't have enough faith. It's, it's an anti-gospel. It's a false gospel. But one of the dangers is that we can, all of us, even if we know that gospel is not true, we can kind of, live that way and when things don't go our way we lose hope in God uh, my wife and I were talking this week about you know people we knew in college that were what we thought just thriving Christians zealous Christians that now have walked away from the faith and it's really important for us that we have a resolve that will keep us from shrinking back and losing our faith in days of darkness. We need to have an essential commitment that gives us resolve to persevere. And that's what the book of Habakkuk is all about, an essential resolve to persevere when all is not well. Habakkuk is writing during the exile of the northern kingdom. Assyria, we've talked a lot about Assyria in recent weeks. Assyria owns the whole region, even down to Egypt at this time that Habakkuk comes to us. Assyria is the dominant superpower of the day. And they own everything. And they are, as we saw last week, described as those who promote unceasing evil. 
And Habakkuk and the people of God are living in this midst and are questioning, where is God? Is God even with us any longer? And Habakkuk wrestles with this tension and the book ends with an essential commitment that we need to cling to as well. Because I hope 20 years from now, you all are still sitting in this church or in a church if the Lord takes you somewhere else, that your children are standing firm in faith. So we need to understand what this essential commitment is. I've entitled this message, Habakkuk, Though Fig Trees Fail. And I'm playing off of something Habakkuk says that we'll look at this morning at the, in chapter 3 at the end of his book. And I'm going to give you our essential commitment in two ways, playing off of the theme in Habakkuk. Though fig trees fail, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Though fig trees fail, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And those will form our two points. We'll look first at though the fig tree fails and use that metaphor. And then we will secondly look at I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. But we are going to see what once again is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life that causes the world to scratch their heads. How can you be happy when you suffer? How can you be happy when God is not bringing forth every wish that you desire here and now? It's a paradox. And it's the paradox that changed empires and nations. It's the paradox that overturned the Roman Empire and Christianized it. It wasn't Jesus went to heaven, poured out the Spirit, and health, wealth, and prosperity abounded. Suffering happened, but God's people rejoiced. And so if we want to persevere We need to hold fast to this essential commitment. Though fig trees fail, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So let's dive in to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is another one of these very short books. If you look on page 7 of your worship folder, you'll see there's three essential parts, or you can even break it down to two if you want. There's two dialogues with God. Habakkuk complains, the Lord responds. Habakkuk complains again, the Lord responds. And then in chapter three, we have this prayer of Habakkuk, which apparently was turned into a song because we see some indications of that in chapter three at the very end of the book, that it was meant to be sung. So the first part of Habakkuk with these two cycles of Habakkuk complaining the Lord responding deal with this reality that the fig tree the fig tree is failing for God's people or it appears that the fig tree is 
failing. In the beginning of chapter 1, Habakkuk complains that God is, seems to be idle while the wicked are prospering. He says in chapter 1, verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. So let's meditate on Habakkuk's complaint for a moment. Habakkuk, again, is sitting in a time when the wicked Assyrian Empire is ruling everything. And the people of God are crying out for help. And it's like God's not there. Like God's not there at all. Remember in Amos, there was that warning of judgment of this famine that would come, this famine of the word of the Lord that would come upon the people of God. And there was this removal of God's witness. And we are now with Habakkuk in the very last days of any kind of prophetic witness before God goes totally silent for 400 years before Christ comes. So there aren't many voices left to speak the word of the Lord. Assyria is ruling and it's like God's not there. I mean, have you ever felt when you pray that God's not listening? I think every Christian has felt that at one point or another. It feels like the prayers that you think are good and righteous and noble that God would love to answer, he's not answering. Instead, you feel like you're just speaking in an echo chamber where you're just hearing your own voice. And God's people are crying out violence as they're beholding this unceasing wickedness of Assyria, as they're looking out upon this empire that was bloodthirsty, that wanted more and more, and they, their policy was a reign of terror to fear nations into submission. And so they would commit the most brutal and treacherous acts to terrify people into submission. And we know God hates that, but if he does, why is he not answering? Why is he not delivering Israel? More so, The moral law is being tread upon and broken. In verse 4, he says that the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Man, and I feel like we see this all over the place today in the West. The the celebration of, as an American citizen, uh, watching the American news, the Uh, Our president signing into law a same-sex marriage bill. We have just the celebration and the legalization 
of what God calls emphatically evil. As great riots unfold because of the recent overturn, again, this is from the American context of Roe v. Wade, where states can decide whether abortion is illegal or not. People are crying injustice that they don't have the right to murder babies in their wombs. And that's the same freedom of choice. What a euphemism. Freedom to murder. That's celebrated in Norway. It's celebrated in the West. It's evil. You know, it's, it's a law that uh, a mother needs to be allowed to have an ultrasound before 12 weeks so that if they detect any defects, they can have the choice to abort the baby. That's, that's a law in Norway. This is the celebration of evil. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Now we still live in the West with the remnants of the gospel and there still is, praise the Lord, uh, a sense of justice which we should be very thankful for and not be deceived that it just happened to come about. If you look at the Greco-Roman world before Christ, these things aren't given in society. This is the world that Habakkuk's living in, and it's the world that we live in to a degree, and all the more our brothers and sisters who live in countries where they are openly persecuted and killed for the faith. We're still crying out, how long, O Lord? We're told in Revelation that the souls under, we're given this picture of souls under an altar crying out, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? There can be the sense that this is going to go on forever. And that leads to Habakkuk's second complaint. Because God's response to his first complaint is, don't worry, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, which is the, another word for the Babylonians. So God's going to raise up another wicked nation to destroy a wicked nation. God says that he is going to do this. And uh, we read in verses 5 and 6, the Lord responds to Habakkuk, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. And he goes on and we see and we know from other books of scripture as well that the Babylonians are going to come in and destroy the Assyrians. And they're gone. They're, and they're gone forever. But what good does that do the people of God? Okay, God uses one wicked nation to punish another. But is God going to just keep doing that forever? So Habakkuk's second complaint is, Lord, are you going to let the wicked prosper and rule forever? Is this then what's going to happen? In uh, chapter 1, verse 17, Habakkuk ends his second, place, or his second complaint saying, 
Is he then to keep on emptying his net, that is the Babylon, this wicked nation, and mercilessly killing nations forever? Is this just going to be the way it's going to be? And the Lord responds by saying, by no means. In verse two, or chapter, verse two of chapter two, the Lord responds and says, "Write the vision." That is this book that we have of Habakkuk's. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time; it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So Habakkuk's dealing with the problem of evil and the problem of God using one wicked nation to tear down another, but is this going to go on forever? And I think we can feel that way as Christians 2,000 years after the days of Christ. You know, Christmas actually becomes a reminder to us that God hasn't finished the work. That we're still in this time between the times of Jesus' first and second coming. And it can be really easy to just feel like, okay, this is going to go on forever. The news cycle we see is just going to go on forever. The emptying of churches is going to just keep going on forever. We are going to forever be in a season of repression, a season of depression, and that God will not actually bring to pass what he promises. And it's right here, and it's in this tension that many Christians, at least who are externally Christians, appear to be Christians, walk away. And churches die slow deaths of attrition because we are putting our hope in a God who will answer all of our prayers now and who will bring the blessing now when that's not what the Bible teaches. So as Habakkuk wrestles with this reality of God in God's timing and ways, he comes to a conclusion in chapter 3. He learns that though fig trees fail, I might ask you, what are those failing fig trees for you? Though fig trees fail, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So let's look at the second portion of the message too. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I want to give you three anchor points for rejoicing and then three applications in light of it in the second point. Number one, the first anchor point for joy is that God will not delay. We see it, as we read a moment ago, in chapter 2, verse 3, 
where the Lord says, If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And here we wrestle with the fact that God is working now. God is the one who removes kings and who sets up kings. God is going to raise up the Babylonians to destroy the Assyrians. And that is part of God's plan. And that's coming soon. And even though it's going to seem like a long time, 400 years later, God is going to send his son and did send his son to take on flesh and to dwell among us. To die on behalf of God's people that we might be raised in glory. The, the early church wrestled with this too in Second Peter. Peter had to remind the listeners, the church, God is not slow in answering his promises as some count slowness. But you see, the thing is, is that one day is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years is like a day. God exists without time, which is something that we as temporal creatures can't understand. What does infinity, what does eternity mean when there's no time? Because we live by time. We come to church, we eat at a certain time. That's us. God doesn't exist that way. And so all time, as it were, is before God. And it sometimes feels slow to us, but God is working. And even as God raises and removes kings and gives temporary deliverances to God's people, he's still doing that now, is he not? Look at the history of the church. The Greco-Roman world, God's people were brutally persecuted for centuries. And then... All of a sudden, Christianity was legalized and then later made the official religion in the former Roman Empire. And then there was a period of darkness again, which we call the Dark Ages. And there was theological perversion and twisting and problems and new doctrines and theologies that emerged around the millennium. On top of that, the, the rise of the Muslim came in the 7th century. And they're now brutally attacking Christendom. And they were wondering, is this when Jesus is going to return? It's an interesting study to look at all the predictions on when Christ would return throughout church history. Surely at the turn of the first millennium, that's when he'd come. We saw similar things with the turn of this millennium. And as we look at church history, we see rises and falls of revival, of depression, of oppression, of seasons of flourishing, of seasons of perishing and suffering. And these things will rise and fall according to God's perfect clock until he chooses the finish point, or rather the new beginning, when Jesus will come and this world will be no more, and a new creation will come in its place. But from God's perspective, he will not delay. And he's working even now in small ways for a greater and glorious end. 
Our joy must be rooted in this fact. We cannot have this essential commitment to joy without it. A second anchor point for joy, that God's past deliverance gives future hope. God's past deliverance gives future hope. In Habakkuk 3, we get this beautiful poem, and I'm not sure, it was a lot of symbolic language. We read it in our scripture reading. I'm not sure how much you were able to, 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 to grab hold of the symbolism, but Habakkuk is recounting the Exodus. He's recounting God's deliverance from Egypt all the way to the promised land in opening seas and opening rivers and bringing destruction and destroying the enemies of God for God's people on the way to the promised land. And Habakkuk is rooting his joy in God's past saving acts. He's rooting his joy in what God has done in the past. And how much more reason do we have to anchor our joy in God's past actions than in the coming of Christ? The coming of the one who became the second Adam to do all that the first Adam failed to do, to redeem us, to make a people. And look, we, can, we have all of church history that we can look back on to see God's saving acts as well. So we can look to the past for our hope for the future. That's what we did with the Lord's table this morning. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We look back to have hope for the future. So we've seen so far two ways to anchor our our joy in the Lord, that God will not delay and that God's past deliverance gives us future hope. Now a third anchor for joy. Joy does not mean an absence of grief. Joy does not mean an absence of grief. When the Lord is telling Habakkuk that the Babylonians are coming, I mean, what's Habakkuk to do with that? It means more suffering is coming on the way to deliverance. The Babylonians are not going to be much better than the Assyrians at all. I mean, look at uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, read the book of Daniel. Life was not much better under the Babylonians. And so... Habakkuk concludes in chapter 3, verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. So even as he's about now in chapter 3 to root, to, to commit to this essential commitment of joy in days of darkness, He's trembling because he knows dark days are coming, even darker than what they've already experienced. I think of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, whose anguish was so severe that he 
shed droplets of blood. He perspired blood, as we're told in the gospel. And he knew he was about to drink the cup of the wrath of God. And even while we can hold on to joy, it might mean at some point we're going to the executioner's block. As many Christians have done and experienced throughout church history, past and present. But Habakkuk was committed to joy, even amidst grief. And that's really important because Christian joy is to not go around being just like chipper. I don't know if that's a, if, uh, if that's a, it's not a word we use a lot. But it doesn't mean we just kind of pretend everything's really good and we just kind of paste on this fake smile and, the, and we're just always happy and nothing bad's happening. That's not real at all. Paul talks about the reality of the Christian life when he says sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And that's our life. We, we go forth with joy but it's a sober joy, isn't it? It's one with the tension. It's one we, we hold this tension of sorrows. We're aware of the real spiritual battle going on. We're aware that the devil is prowling around seeking someone to devour. You know, we're aware, for, as I think as a pastor, of people who have sat in these chairs that no longer sit in them. And they're not at another church. They're just not here they're not in church anymore right that's a sorrow that we hold to as we think about unbelieving family members over christmas that's a sorrow that is real and legitimate that we should feel sad about and at the same time there is a resolve in god's salvation that brings an inner joy in the midst of it So we must commit, as Habakkuk does, and say with him, not just with words, but with faith, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So I want to conclude then with three applications of how we can apply this principle of rejoicing in the God of our salvation. Number one, wait quietly wait quietly in chapter 3 verse 16 after habakkuk talks about rottenness entering his bones at the idea of babylon coming and destroying everything they know and their little sense of peace within the assyrian empire he feels like death is entering his body as babylon is coming and yet he says I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. We are in a world that has been invaded by wicked people. And a wicked fallen angel named Satan. And in times of darkness, we need to be like Habakkuk and root our joy in this principle. I will 
quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon these wicked people, those who invade us. So Christian godly joy is rooted in a quiet waiting. Secondly, another application, it's rooted in an expressed commitment to be joyful. An expressed commitment to be joyful. One of the most beautiful texts of all of Scripture is here in 3, verses 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So joy doesn't just come upon you without also a resolve to be joyful. And as Habakkuk sees, everything's going bad. The bank account's low. The business is not doing well. Wicked people are butchering us. And more wicked people are coming. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You need to preach joy to one another in your homes. To your own soul. Say, hope in God. Even we see this in the Psalms where the psalmist is preaching to himself, hope in God. Say, soul, be joyful. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So wait quietly. Make a resolution to be joyful. And thirdly, and finally, walk by faith. Walk by faith. Three times in the New Testament is Habakkuk quoted. And the verse that I'm talking about is chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Talking about the enemy. But the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. And this verse is cited in Romans it's cited in Galatians. We read that in our assurance of pardon this morning. And it's cited in Hebrews chapter 10, which we read in our New Testament scripture reading. The righteous shall live by faith. And I want to conclude then with this, that putting ultimate joy together, it happens as we commit ourselves to walk by faith and not by sight. Remember the writer of Hebrews we looked at last Lord's Day was dealing with those that were part of the people of God and then walked away. They, in their case, were returning to Old Testament Judaism. But today, the, the, the God of this world is secularism. It's the self. And people are walking away to the idol of themselves and to this world. And the writer of Hebrews is encouraging them to stand firm in faith. To not shrink back. For the righteous shall live by faith. Rather than giving more comment, I want to simply read 
this last portion of Hebrews again as an exhortation to you for our essential commitment for days of darkness, that though fig trees fail, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And we will do this with a joy that is expressed through faith. Hebrews 10, reading verses 32 to the end of the chapter, will close with these words. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. And here's our verse from Habakkuk. But the righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back, and I say that to each one of you sitting here, may it be so, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Though fig trees fail, beloved, may we say together, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Let's pray.